what kind of witness do we wish to bear? Which is why the question of communion and schism and working away, in a, even in a house divided, working away on the road together is so fundamental to the witness to the gospel. Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm a scholar, writer, and translator specializing in political theology, the intersection between religion and politics. Joining me for a conversation about Anglicanism is the Right Reverend Professor Stephen Pickard. Stephen has just recently retired from a long and illustrious career in both the Anglican Church in Australia and many academic institutions, some of them Anglican, some of them more ecumenical in their outlook. He's been an assistant bishop in the Diocese of Adelaide. He's also been an assistant bishop in the Diocese of Canberra-Goulburn. He's been a member of several important national commissions of the Anglican Church in Australia. He's been a lecturer at United Theological College. He's been the director of St. Mark's National Theological College. He's also been the executive director of the Australian Centre for Christianity and Culture at Charles Sturt University. He's an ecclesiologist by trade. He's the author of a number of books and many articles, and he's had other academic appointments, too many to mention, although some of this might come up in the course of the conversation. I guess the bottom line is I'm fortunate enough to have a guest who knows the Anglican Church in Australia and globally very well and has been involved up close and personal and has done a lot of thinking about it. And so it is with great pleasure, Stephen, that I extend a warm welcome to you. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It's lovely to be on this podcast. Okay, look, we should begin at the beginning. Now, what is the beginning? Of course. <laughs> of course. Which, which of the thousand beginnings are we talking about? I'd like to begin with your own personal story. Uh, looking, looking back at this stage of your life, having just retired from decades of service in the Anglican Church, what on earth led you in the first place to become an ordained priest and or minister, depending on the language, and that's a bit of a hint to the kind of divisions we might work our way into in this Anglican Church? Where did your Anglican journey begin? I'm actually a cradle Anglican, uh, Jonathan. I thought one day when I get really old, I might write a book on, you know, an insider's view of the church. I haven't got a story which says I was um, outside and I came in through a strange door and had a remarkable experience. I'm a cradle Anglican and I grew up in the Hunter Valley and uh, my earliest uh, memories are being at Sunday school, which I didn't like and eager to get into the worshipping life of the church. And uh, I was confirmed um, as a young, young boy. Um, it was in the my mid-teenage years that I really had a sense of God's presence uh, calling me to something. And uh, uh, I don't think it was a surprise to my parents or others that might have known me that I eventually ended up as a priest. But the journey by which I moved from those teenage uh, kind of intuitions to uh, ordained uh, ministry were uh, a little bit more um, varied than most people on, would have expected from me. Um, I ended up uh, working in industrial relations at Newcastle Steelworks for after I left high school. 
and uh, that was uh, six years of very interesting uh, work in which uh, uh, my involvement in the church continued in youth groups and that's where I met my uh, future wife. Um, it was in that period that uh, I learned about so many things to do with institutional life uh, in, in our society and some of the difficulties and challenges. And then uh, the question about vocation and ministry uh, was always hovering and it was really a very practical issue ultimately that um, was well if you were going to go into full-time ministry and offer yourself for ordination in the Anglican Church at, at that stage um, that was the only one that um, I knew I grew up in the Church of England with the Book of Common Prayer mind you being born in the mid 20th century um, then how would you know and what would be the sign and for me, it was very simple. I thought, I'll write a letter to the bishop and I'll say, I'd like to have a conversation with you about uh, ministry and ordination and I'll see what comes. Six months later, uh, we're driving up to St. John's College, Morpeth Theological College, having resigned uh, my, my work after six years in, in industrial relations. And uh, I had to pinch myself that it happened so quickly all of a sudden and I was uh, 24 at that stage which uh, when I look back on it now it frightens me how young I was at the time but it seemed the natural logical thing to do I always remember um, Stanley Howis a great American theologian ethicist saying you know a lot of the decisions you make in your life which from the outside look like mega inst uh, decisions he said sometimes they're already made for you by how you've been formed and who you are and other decisions which for you have been full of angst and wrestling, um, on the outside look the most simplest things um, uh, that you could possibly imagine. This one had a certain inner flow to it and uh, felt a natural evolution. And uh, there were other things in my spiritual life in those six years, I have to say, which were tumultuous, uh, which is another story. Uh, so on the one hand, it was a very easy natural thing for myself and my wife who was very much involved in this in ministry with me from the beginning uh, on the one hand a very very smooth um, coherent kind of passage there was an understory it's a bit like comparing the book of chronicles and the books of samuel <laughs> one's the public history and one's the the other side <laughs> uh, which was full of uh, storm and tempest and uh, spiritual wrestlings for a supposedly cradle anglican deciding whether uh, the spiritual life of being a Christian and a follower of Jesus was actually uh, able to be undertaken and that that is another story and uh, that was quite a quite a journey too they came together in the decision finally to offer for ministry that's fascinating and from the point in which you got in 24 it, it is even for me at 45 looking back it's like wow to People do go into ministry pretty young, don't they? And I had my own sort of gung-ho youth when I was going to plant churches around the world and do various things, which fortunately I didn't pursue <laughs> for everyone concerned, including yeah. the Christian church. But you, you talk about it being in some ways a kind of straightforward decision looking back. Yeah. So was getting in easier than staying in for <laughs> the decades in which you've been in? Because you talked about spiritual tumultuousness but uh the anglican church in australia and globally is pretty tumultuous too right so 
The, the best training for me on all of these things was the six years prior to that when I was in the steelworks. And uh, being involved in industrial relations in the steelworks in the 70s was uh, a, a tumultuous period. And uh, people in industrial relations position were, first of all, they were employed by the company. So you were supposed to be a company person. On the other hand, you were dealing at the coalface of fairly major conflicts between the union and the company. And the whole area of disputation and conflict was, was part and parcel of how, they, how business was done. Um, so for me, um, although I'm no lover of conflict, as a matter of fact, I have a real issue with uh, the way it's, it's uh, become sort of stock in trade of people's modus operandi, um, it was very good training for me in terms of thinking about uh, conflict, disputation, negotiation, collaboration, and how, how you got on together across the divide. So I always thought I'd put that behind me when I went to theological college, had three years there, and I was ordained deacon and a priest in 1980 in Newcastle Diocese. I, I thought, the past is behind me. Well, actually, the past has been traveling in me for the last uh, 45 years uh, in the church, which has been full of conflict. And uh, it's not surprising, really. We're human beings. Uh, the church is many different things, but one thing it, it is is a, a society of human beings who are not perfect um, and have their deep-seated prejudices on the way to uh, trying to, try to find a, a way forward as, as human beings and followers of Christ. What can I say? It's, uh, conflict is, uh, and dispute is the way families do their business, and the church as family is uh, no different from others. It should be in some respects. I've gone on too long about this, but uh, no, you, you get my flavour. And, and we definitely are going to dive right into some of these conflicts. But before we do, because we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, um, we'll leave that for when we, when we zero sure. in on the Australian context and then <clears throat> yep. work back out to the global context because there are divisions in both Australia and sure. the global Anglican uh, communion. But before we get there, we need to explore a little bit this whole notion of Anglicanism. And I'm very conscious, as all listeners will be, and every Anglican knows this <laughs> instinctively or experientially, that you know, when you ask the question, what is Anglicanism? Well, you're going to get a different answer depending. Uh, it's a bit bit like um, making measurements of the universe. It really depends where you're measuring from. And of course, what Anglicanism means is itself a contested <laughs> notion. But you are someone with this broad experience in the church and you're a student of Anglicanism and Anglican history. This is where your ecclesiology comes in. So... Let me ask you, this is all just by way of acknowledging that clearly we can't, you know, I can't do a podcast that airs the hundred thousand different perspectives on Anglicanism, but I would be really fascinated and I think it would be useful for our listeners to hear what your understanding of Anglicanism is. What does Anglicanism mean to Stephen Pickard? It's a, it's a very simple, deceptively simple question, yeah. uh, Jonathan. I'm not going to try and complexify it, which I've got a great... Uh, capacity to do. Um, first of all, historically, it's, uh, it, Anglicanism today is, is a child of 
the Gospels and the way of Jesus from earliest days. And uh, um, the word Anglican and the usage of that word is only a reasonably recent uh, development in the 19th century. Um, prior to that, of course, there was the, the church in England. And that, contrary to popular opinion, did not begin in the 16th century. There was a Christian church back from at least the 4th century on the missions from uh, Europe uh, to, uh, to what is now the British, well, the British Isles. So the, uh, the roots of Anglicanism go back to the very roots of the Christian mission, which starts in Jerusalem. I'd put it that way quite, uh, quite uh, deliberately. The development of Anglicanism as a particular church within the worldwide body of churches of the Christian faith is a rather um, involved and journey. But certainly from uh, the 16th century reform, where there was an, a, a, a decision or decisions to recover the originative notion of Christianity in the British Isles and uh, disassociate itself from the legal structure of uh, the then uh, Catholic Church. That, that reform movement um, propelled the Church of England on a particular uh, pathway. Um, the 19th century was the critical uh, century for the expansion of the Church of England on the back of the 19th century world mission movement that kind of emanated from uh, uh, Europe and uh, the Church of England uh, in the 19th century particularly. And so the Church of England found itself uh, located wherever the, the colonies uh, emerged, um, India, uh, South America, particularly India, Asia, uh, North America, before that, of course, um, through the Wesleys and, and others. Uh, some time before. And so what uh, was a particular church, the Church of England, uh, became a worldwide uh, body of fellowship of churches uh, that uh, found their roots uh, from the Church of England, the Book of Common Prayer, and the Archbishop of Canterbury as a focal point for that uh, source of uh, institutional unity. Um, and then in the uh, the move to Australia in 1788, Captain Arthur Phillip and uh, Richard Johnson, the first chaplain of the, the colony. And then um, some years later, uh, an archdeacon, Thomas Scott. And then in the early 19th century, uh, four years later, in I think 1829, uh, William Broughton was made um, archdeacon um, of the Diocese of Calcutta as you would expect <laughs> not. In those early days of the Church of England in Australia, it was the, the Church of England and Ireland in Australia, and it was an offshoot, or it, it was subsumed under the Diocese of Calcutta from India. And it was in, 19, in 1836 that William Grant Broughton was made the first church, bishop of Church of England in Australia. And from there... Uh, there were um, over the course of that century uh, more dioceses uh, sort of emerged, which followed, generally speaking, the uh, the pattern of state state development. And uh, uh, the diocese of Tasmania was created in 1842. In 19 in 1847, the diocese of Newcastle, 
Um, so there was a continual uh, differentiation as uh, the Church of England developed more and more on, on the turf of what is now called Australia. Um, what is Anglicanism? It's a worldwide um, a body of churches uh, that see themselves with their historical roots in the Church of England. Um, a focal point is the Archbishop of Canterbury. It now spans... Uh, 164, 165 countries, 85 million adherents. Be uh, apart from it's the third most populous uh, world and world fellowship of churches after the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox churches, and then Anglicanism. So it's it's um it has a global reach. It's quite remarkable, really, um, and. Uh, uh, it's a very vibrant in some places, particularly Africa. Uh, it's it's growing extremely fast. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, I'm Is that oh, I've made that too complex, have I? <laughs> no, 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 no. That you, you, I mean, I know it gets much more complex than yeah. that because I'm just thinking there are a number of there are a number of different complexities here actually yeah. because the church is not particularly young. If you if you look up a conventional history book you know the key dates are going to be in the 16th century but as you know the church in england actually goes back further than that and has its own distinctives that we can talk about but even if we just take it as a 500 Mm. year old church well then there have been a lot of developments over the course of those five centuries so anglicanism what is anglicanism depends to some extent, where and when you're talking about. And even if you hone in on a when and where, and let's take that the 16th century just in England alone. Well, again, there are there are different influences and different voices. And from my perspective, having read the history a fair bit, although not, re- not recently, there's clearly both, in one sense, a struggle between... There, there, there's there's a degree of unity about the need to reform the church in some sense but the precise contours and content of that reform is a matter of dispute to go back to that word that has come up a number of times already and so throughout the course of that century it kind of ebbs and flows (laughs) depending on whether we're talking about the reign of queen elizabeth or the henry the eighth reign or then there's the sort of one swing of the pendulum during the um, time of Bloody Mary, and there's also the the sort of Roman Catholic part of this dispute. And that's before we even get out of England and out of the 16th century, and so that that is just a, a sort of entree into an, an observation I want to make, which was really interesting because I don't I don't think I heard you mention the word Reformation in there at all. Which is interesting, and again, you know, I keep saying I, I, I want to leave the actual <laughs> specificities of the dispute that characterises the Anglican Church for down the path. But in a way, it's such a defining characteristic that we can't get. But of course, for uh, a significant constituency of the Church, the Reformation is the defining element, and, and there are definitely continental influences: Calvin, Luther. And others. So, I'd be interested in your perspective on how, where does the Reformation and what's going on in the continent feature 
in this recovery of a more ancient English church tradition? That's a very good question, uh, Jonathan. I, I didn't use the word Reformation. I did appeal to the notion of reform. You did, that's true. And, yeah. and uh, the church is always in reform. And so it's an ongoing. So there is no one uh, final moment in the repair and the reform uh, of uh, the, the, the body of Christ in the world. But no doubt the 16th century was a major um, period of reforming, reformation. And it was a very, uh, very complex. What's interesting for me is it was contingent. It could have been otherwise. There's no blueprint here. Um, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Uh, it was Kierkegaard that said, you know, uh, life is lived forward and understood backwards. And so we look back from our prejudicial positions now and look at what was happening in the 16th century. And we have various interpretations of it. But at the time, it was uh, conceived as, as a real battle for the, the life and the soul of a people. Uh, it, it was, uh, there was... Uh, there were very powerful influences from the continent, um, particularly uh, Luther and Calvin, as you mentioned. Um, but they, their influence is judged differently um, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, by different, uh, different scholars. Uh, it was part of the genius of the, uh, the reform in the Church of England at the time that it managed by, uh, uh, by by some way, um, over that course of the 16th century, um, to find to find a, a way of incorporating key key elements from uh, Luther and Calvin um, into what is called the Tudor settlement of Elizabeth, um, of which the great exponent is uh, Richard uh, Richard Hooker in the late uh, 16th century, um, which was really a settlement between laity and clergy as much as the Church of England vis-a-vis the the Catholic Church as such. Um, It was very much uh, a a, a wrestle at times between the laos, the laity, and the the clergy. Which is another additional layer of um, complexity. That is that the, it's not like there's one dispute. There are multiple. There are different factors at work here in in a time of Great reform, and, and then and then of course we're familiar with the the notion of the via media, the middle way. I mean, trying to chart a course between Roman Roman Catholicism as it was understood um, and uh, more extreme forms of uh, Protestantism. It, it is true that the Church of England would have understood itself in the 16th century and into the 17th century as Protestant. It was protesting about excesses and things that it felt. Was uh, were were in need of, of change and reform, so it understood itself as a Protestant uh, Protestant church, but it saw itself as Catholic, continuing Catholic, and reformed, and I think that's a nice way to put what happened in the Reformation, uh, a way in which the Church of England both uh, held on and maintained its essential Catholicity, its deep connection with the past. And one of the areas in which that was most uh, disputed and controverted was about uh, bishops and the ordering of the church, strangely enough. Um, and the fact is that uh, the, the, the enduring Catholicity of the Anglican church 
one of the elements of that is its, its ordering, its episcopally uh, ordered uh, church. Um, on the other hand, um, it, uh, it saw the need for some... As, it, as John Jewell, the great, one of the great apologists for the Church of England in the 16th century, um, it, he said, as many did, it's time for us to return to our roots to the radical gospel of the early church. And, um, and we need to um, remove some of the excretions that have, uh, the carbuncles that have, the brambles that have overgrown the pathway. Uh, Hook, Richard Hooker himself loved the idea of the pathway, the brambles had got over. Uh, but there was always a dispute with the more, uh, more um, uh, the, the, the more Puritan Calvinist uh, line on this, that uh, yes, and some of those brambles we, we don't think the ordering of the church um, is an inconsequential matter. We think that is more than a bramble. That's actually uh, broken up the path. And so there was this uh, late 16th century uh, uh, controversy about the status of the ordering of the church and whether we need bishops or a more Presbyterian form of government. Uh, it was very powerful. And uh, it was one of the, I think, the, the genius of the, the Tudor settlement and the, the likes of Richard Hooker or the great ecumenical theologian of the 17th century, Richard Field, which hardly anybody's heard about, but I certainly appreciated his work, who was much more of a Calvinist flavour. It was very hard for a great theologian not to be deeply influenced by Calvin. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's, that, that's, that's just the reality of um, how the best theological minds were shaped and formed at that time. But nonetheless, uh, the... the the Church of England positioned itself as, in vis-a-vis of Rome, as, well, it's still a church. It doesn't. It didn't. It never unchurched its uh, its heritage. It was not about to do that. Um, but it said, in some fundamental respects, it was not a sound church. That was its. Some said it's not a true church. Yeah. And the argument was all often, well, it's not sound, but it's still a true church. That was the position that uh, um, held held sway over the 16th and the 17th century, notwithstanding the fact that there was a lot of controversy about that. Um, but, of course, the, the rise of the Puritan um, uh, strength of the church, in the Church of England in the 17th century created quite a storm. And there was a time under Cromwell where, by the end of that, uh, having lopped off a head of an archbishop, um, that uh, there were, I think, in the mid-17th century, just before the Restoration, 1760, there were only three bishops left in the Church of England. So wow. you I didn't get, realize that. I've always, uh, and, and from that, it, it, uh, it, it, and in the Restoration, the episcopacy, episcop, episcopacy was restored and it continued to, the ordering of the Church recovered itself. Um, I always thought of the wonderful passage in John's Gospel about um, uh, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and breaks open, it can't be fruitful. And episcopacy, <laughs> as a form of the ordering of the church, fell to the ground in that period, and it had to break open and to be fruitful again. Um, so there should be a lot of lessons for the Anglican episcopate and its ordering, given uh, its own history, I would have thought. But it's not the only interesting period, and I, I, I would simply say to you that, unfortunately, today, um, there are too many people that scratch where the 16th century itched. And we're in a new time and a new place, 
and uh, holding on to some of the prejudices and the ideological positions of yesteryear will not are not fit for purpose for how we shall be the church for the future and what kind of Christian church we will be. So I, I don't think I, I think there is a danger in all roads lead to that Reformation. I think uh, there's something more interesting theologically and politically than just that period, although it was so fundamental. And also more than a few years have elapsed since well, the 16th century. There's about 500 years. And, yeah. uh, you know, the great uh, uh, kind of theories about civilization, and we are in a tumultuous period in the 500 years since the major reorientations of things in the 16th century. So what we shall become, like the scriptures say, it is not yet clear what we shall become. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's really fascinating, that observation about really one of the core differences that emerges in the Reformation century and context, and which I think can still be seen or detected beneath the surface, sometimes right at the, the top of the surface. And that is this these two different perspectives on what the English church in that period was. Was it a reform of the Catholic church? Or was it a restoration of a true church, which by definition is not the Catholic church? That is, you could reform the Catholic church all you like, but actually it's still going to be the wrong the wrong path versus others who say, you know, fundamentally the, the, the roots of the Catholic Church are, are sound, but the fruit has started rotting. And so we've got to start caring for the branch in a different way. And again, I know, I, I realize as I've noted myself, and I don't need to tell you, there, there are many layers of de- debate here. And you mm, talked about mm. the, the impact of this relationship between the laity and the clergy at that time, which is playing out beneath the surface. There's the whole issue of politics so you know one dimension of that via media is from the perspective of queen elizabeth she has to rule over a kingdom that is in theological dispute that has catholics that has reformers some more catholic some (laughs) wanting to go a, a lot a lot further in an age where everyone is religious in some sense culturally or spiritually and you have to somehow rule this and you don't have all of the tools of the modern modern state and so the underlying theory is that we all have to be on the same page (laughs) on this religion question and so a compromise which might be dissatisfying for a lot of people on theological or ecclesial grounds is one thing but it's they often don't look at it from the perspective of someone that actually has to keep a kingdom together and stop it descending into civil war as had happened on the continent and was in prospect in england um, absolutely. I think the way you put that is, is really helpful. Um, it, a thought came to me as you were speaking about that. It, it, was, uh, it was in the 16th century, Richard Hooker said, look, this question about unchurching other churches, we have to remember if, if our roots are actually in the church Catholic, the universal church from the Gospels in the early Christianity, then if we uh, now turn around from a purely pastoral point of view and say, was it possible that our parents and their parents and their parents could not be saved because it was never a real church? So there was a pastoral issue here about the comfort and the consolation of knowing that uh, in the providence of God, um, notwithstanding 
the brambles and the, the overgrowth and the, the fruit that was rotting, etc., that uh, there was a church here. It was the Church of Jesus Christ in all its failures. Um, the consequence of rejecting that from a pastoral point of view, let alone theological and ecclesial and political, from a pastoral point of view, uh, was actually really quite quite significant for the, the well-being of the spirit, spiritual well-being of human beings. Um, so there, there, there's always that human factor in disputes and how we deal with dis- disputation and, and disunity and disagreement about what I call the human, the human factor, about uh, how we actually recognize and acknowledge other, other being, people. I mean, and I think that's why going back to the Gospels and the life of Jesus and uh, how, how that has provided an exemplar uh, as well as a power and an energy for human beings to find a, a more compassionate way of dealing with their own difference is so fundamental today. Um, Look, we've tiptoed around the elephant waiting outside <laughs> long enough, so we should just open up the gate and let it straight in and put listeners out of their their misery because the, the division... The, the divisions in both Australia and globally in Anglicanism have become a defining characteristic and is going to be a big determinant, I think, of whatever Anglicanism and this this church, part of the church Catholic lower C, uh, becomes. Part of that division, I think, does go back to unresolved tensions in the 16th century, that, that view that you articulated beautifully between the pathway... <laughs> Is it a pathway that just needs to be cleaned up or relayed in a different direction? I think that's still a, a, a sort of unresolved mm. tension. Mm. Mm. And that in some ways, the remarkable thing is that the, the different parties are still in the same church with that tension <laughs> being there for five centuries. Although there are probably uh, exogenous factors that make bring that tension to the fore. And there are some now in terms of the wider secular culture, which I think have brought this tension into a kind of relief that sometimes maybe it, it's easier to to live with. There's an interesting book that uh, another Anglican bishop, Tom Frame, who I think was your predecessor as the director of St. Mark's National No, he, he's my successor. Successor, my, my yeah, apologies. Yeah. I, knew it was a, I, knew, I knew it was an Esser of some sort. <laughs> the... He wrote a book called A House Divided Question Mark. I'm not sure why the question mark in hindsight was needed. I read it a while ago and it's a great, great book. And the subtitle is The Quest for Unity Within Anglicanism. And he names, I think, three divisions, but ultimately there there, there are two core disputing wings, if we just use this broadly in a kind of Weberian uh, archetypal <laughs> Or ideal type sense and we have evangelicals or reformed christians depending on what language is used and then we have anglo-catholics on the other side sometimes called liberal anglo-catholics sometimes some people speak in terms of a high and low church which is a kind of ecclesial dimension that seems to to cleave alongside the theological dimension do you agree that really the division is really between two core camps or, you know, if we really want to get in the weeds, are there 10, 20 different (laughs) 
camps uh and, I, and let's focus on the australian context sure. first and how do you explain the nature of of the what is at the heart of the dispute today between evangelical anglicans in australia and anglo-catholics just to give them the broad broad brushstroke names it's hard to know this is the this is the easy part of the uh, (laughs) discussion for every utterly simple question there's always a perfectly reasonable uh solution which is complex and wrong yeah and a simple i mean there's so many complexities we simplify things in times of uncertainty we always are trying to simplify things um, and we can get it so so wrong and not not uh, not care for the the nuances um well i i could would want to stand back from that i i think the uh, in one sense the depiction of the evangelical reformist and the catholic is a continuing thread that you'll find from you know 16th century dis- disputes uh, and, it, and it has its uh, origins, you can see, in that uh, identity that the Church of England understood itself as Catholic and Reformed. Mm-hmm. It was both and. And it was committed to that Catholic, that essential Catholicity and the uh, imperative of reform. So that, they're two kind of red threads that run through the history. And you can chart the way that sort of... But in the 20th century, uh, the, I think we shouldn't underestimate the power of the host culture. And I think I would locate these two streams very much uh, within that. Um, we're in a period of uh, deep uh, uncertainty, many uncertainties, a lot of anxiety, and we're a transitional period. In those kind of periods, uh, in our, our culture and social life, um, we tend to try to hold on to the things that we uh, know that the narratives that make sense to us as we're trying to negotiate and and I, I wouldn't want to underestimate the power of uh, the anxieties of the age which drive us back to those well-established narratives of identity which is both a strength but as in most things Jonathan your strength is also your weakness and the extent that we get become locked in those uh, is the extent to which we are unable to open ourselves to some new possibilities and renegotiate the settlement, so to speak. Um, some years ago, um, I wrote I wrote an article uh, on I called it innovation and undecidability, the uh, the predicament of the <laughs> the church. I mean, uh, because the gospel is what it is, it's a radical innovation within the history of the the world. It's God's innovative uh, work in the person of Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit. Um, it breaks all boundaries. It disturbs the uh, common ground, if you like. Um, so there's this deep-seated uh, drive to innovate within, uh, with, it's in the seed of the gospel. But yet, where are these innovations going to take us? And a lot of the disputation in the church in its history has been not being able to decide what innovations are, are helpful and what innovations are dangerous. Right now, we are in a time when there are a lot of innovations taking place and we think we can get a purchase on them by moving to these, uh, these, these, these kind of binaries. But where do you locate world 
um, Pentecostalism in that. Where do you locate the emergence of Pentecostalism in its Australian form, in the charismata? These, these traditional evangelical Catholic uh, binaries are good for first base, but they're not home runs on anything now because the whole thing has been mixed up. And uh, world uh, Christianity is marked by Pentecostalism, hmm. not by uh, conservative Calvinist kind of evangelicalism, nor uh, an old-fashioned Catholicism. It's, uh, it's entire, we're in a new scrabbled, disturbed ground, and Pentecostalism is the, is the flavor of whatever of these two traditions take, take root in a particular country, Africa, South America, what have you. So the, the world, world Christianity is far more interesting, and that, uh, that incredible richness is reflected in world Anglicanism because it's in 165 countries. It does have 85 million adherents, and they have not been inoculated. Uh, there, wasn't a, there wasn't a flu shot on evangelicalism and Catholicism in the 16th century, of which people uh, can just now get and, and inoculate them from these other movements, which are massive. Um, so I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant to allow the, this traditional depiction to, to run, the, run the story. Having said that, it's, it's very much a powerful driver of the way the Church of uh, the Anglican Church in Australia. It's only been called the Anglican Church in Australia since 1981, so it's got 40 years, hasn't got half a century yet. Um, we only got a constitution of the Anglican Church of Australia in 1961. It took over 100, nearly 100 years for us to get a constitution. Why? Because we were so much at loggerheads with each other. And the constitution we've... How did, how did this house divided, to use <laughs> Frame's term, even managed to pass a constitution well, in 61. Well, there's a very simple reason. Because um, the Anglican Church in Australia is driven by a very a strong notion of local diocesan autonomy, um, a national church was ever only going to uh, succeed in having a constitution to hold it together if it ensured in the way its polity was organised that maximum autonomy was given to individual dioceses for fear at the time in the mid-20th century when the Anglo-Catholic and more liberal wing was in the ascendancy, so to speak. Um, the more conservative or evangelical uh, wing that you've alluded to uh, was, was never going to sign up to a national constitution which threatened... Uh, the autonomy of a local diocese to uh, to determine its own its own course of uh, work in the gospel. For example, if the uh, general synod of of the National Anglican Church determines a matter on a no many issues, those things then have to be voted upon and agreed upon. For example, ordination of women. The Church of England in England has a much more central. Uh, centralized order of government than here we're much more dispersed and uh, as my uh, good friend and colleague and mentor uh, Bruce Kay has once said to me and I think he's right um, the Anglican Church of Australia has over 150 years of the experience of low-grade koinonia <laughs> <laughs> which uh, people see as a negative and I I take a different view it's learned how to deal with difference and dispute 
uh, and still have some glue to hold it. Uh, Bruce's view was at the time, and still is I think, this should be a good example for the worldwide Anglican Communion, which has got its own disputes and difficulties, that uh, this is, there may be a way of living in a, together in a house divided, which is not finally uh, committing um, having divorce. Um, you take the analogy with human families. Um, th there's very few families, I don't know of any families that don't have divisions from time to time. It just seems a bit chronic in the Church, <laughs> in the yeah. church of Australia. Um, so at, at this stage, I think in the history of the Anglican Church in Australia, the, the evangelical conservative uh, stream uh, is certainly, I think, in the ascendancy. That's reflected in so the... So that's a significant change then. That, that's been uh, a very the, significant change the last 30 years. Because evangelicalism, Anglican evangelicalism, arrived in Australia on the first fleet. So it's not like... Richard Johnson it, you know, was an came, evangelical? Absolutely. Yeah, it's not that it came late. So no, it's, it's no, interesting that you mentioned in the 60s that the Anglo-Catholic part of the disputatious family was in the ascendancy. So that, that clearly is a... A big change and a change like that is going to have an impact on the nature of the dispute obviously isn't it um it it does uh and uh, so there is there is that uh, recognition it is it it is in the ascendancy and that's reflected in the voting patterns in general synod the most recent uh, uh synodic uh, general synod um, re reflected that on the question of human sexuality but that that's kind of just how life works that's how democracy works. That's well, yes. Yeah, you know, and I've actually had that conversation with somebody recently. I said, "Well, it's not simply democracy; it's representative democracy." Yeah. And the the genius of representative democracy politically is that it cares for the minority view, rather than having majorityism. Unfortunately, I think the representative side of representative democracy has been lopped off, and now democracy is too too quickly associated with majority rule. Now, that's a very dangerous thing politically, and it's actually a very dangerous thing ecclesially, uh, that how do we look after and care for minority views uh, within the church, which is very plural, pluralistic, uh, very uh, diverse. Um, so that's an ongoing challenge. But as I say, we have a constitution which ensures uh, a lot of autonomy for local dioceses. So in a way, Stephen, this is, this is really interesting. This idea has just popped into my mind. I'd be very interested to know what you think about it. But as a consequence of the dispute going into this attempt to come up with a constitution and a national church that is Australian, you end up with a very loose federal system with where all the power is in the local autonomy. This is the way the United States was supposed to be set, set up, although it ended up with a very centralised government, which is exactly. a whole other story. Yeah, yeah. So the the division itself, or divisions, plural, produced, ironically or paradoxically, a settlement that has probably kept it together. Exactly. Because if you had a strong central, then, then it would be all-out warfare for control of the centre. And then definitely one side or another would have split off the moment the edict came down from on on high. So in a in a strange way, I wonder if it was a blessing in disguise that the dispute forced a kind of settlement that 
somewhat miraculously, and I know I know there's been talk of the Diocese of Sydney leaving, although it hasn't mm. happened presently, but I think that talk's been around for a long time, hasn't it? Yeah, in, in yeah it has. one form or another. But we need to be realistic that, that the a split has actually occurred in quite a few jurisdictions like the United States, New Zealand, uh, I think Canada, you probably know yeah. better than me. Yeah. So it's not like that's not a, a possibility. And I don't know whether you could make the comparison between this loose federal structure and a more centralized structure, perhaps in some of those other jurisdictions that may have been instrumental in the split. Yeah. Well, the, the analogy, I think, the better analogy for me is uh, the Anglican Church of Australia and its ordering and arrangement reflects very much the political ordering of Australia, Commonwealth and states. Which is interesting. Yeah. So uh, again, uh, very protective states' rights, Commonwealth jurisdictions, what, what areas of concern uh, are the Commonwealths and the states. There is, there is an analogy there with the way uh, the National Church, National Anglican Church, in relation to local diocesan uh, um, arrangements are yes it is uh, you, some miraculous might be a little bit too strong a word I'm um, not sure that's some, a so, I call it soft providentialism <laughs> well I think mir- miraculous is not something likely to meet applause on either side of this divide no, no I don't think it feels no. miraculous no, to, no, the, no, to no. the parties in the midst of the dispute but, but that's where I think the role of theology is really important in this and uh, the church uh, doesn't do well in uh, fostering its, its, its critical thinking. Um, uh, and maybe I might say something about sure. that. On, on Chris, I, it's, it's, I think, germane to these issues of division, dispute, who we listen to. Um, it was in the 19th century uh, in uh, uh, John Henry Newman, the great, uh, well, remarkable human being, started off as a, uh, uh, in his evangelical background, uh, Anglican uh, priest, um, Ended up um, uh, leaving the Anglican, the Church of England, and becoming a Roman Catholic uh, and cardinal. And and eventually, at the back end of his oh, life, right. finally a cardinal. He um, he was not naive about the church he'd gone into in the nineteenth century. The Roman Catholic Church in England was not very significant, vis-a-vis the Church of England. Yeah, he was leaving the Church of Status and going into totally, the... totally. He went into the back blocks, so to speak, and. Uh, but, but that, that move was very interesting, and he did a lot of reflection as a, a, a Roman Catholic on the, the ordering of the church. And of course, um, you, can, you can leave the Church of England, but the Church of England doesn't leave you. <laughs> and there's, there's elements of that in uh, Newman's latter work. Um, he wrote um, a famous uh, set, of, he gave a, a famous set of lectures in the 1830s, I think, on the prophetical office of the church. And that was reprinted, interestingly enough, in uh, the late 19th century, in which he, he, he wrote a foreword to it, reflecting back on that, that period and kind of update it. But in that foreword, he, he proposed that there are three great powers of the church, or the churches. There is the, what he called the ecclesial political power, there is the, and we need that for the ordering of things. Need some kind of government we to do. run affairs. Yeah, you know, ask a ask a family, and who, what are the rules in this family, spoken or otherwise? Um, then there was the sacramental worship tradition, 
which is the lifeblood of, of our life as, as Christians, offering to God and receiving from God in word and sacrament and, and, and the, the great markers of our life, births, marriages, deaths, and a few things in between, um, the sacramental tradition. And then there was the, the third, and that was the, the philosophical, critical, theological tradition. He said, uh, the church needs the three of those powers to be in search of a constant negotiation and balance. Otherwise, if the, when the sacramental tradition uh, rules, you get uh, excessive superstition and a whole range of excretions that, that don't help. So you need something to, to offer a critical view of that. When the political ecclesiastical rules, then brute force and power become the order of the day and it's not open to uh, genuine reform. If theology uh, in the philosophical critical uh, side of things uh, takes power, then the church becomes an, an intellectual uh, feast, but uh, it, loses it. it can lose its soul in its sacramental tradition. So you need the three. I've always found Newman's rather simple uh, typology, but exceedingly helpful to think through where we're at today. My, my view is that the, the political ecclesiastical uh, run, runs the ship. It's in ascendancy, has been for a long time, uh, particularly in a period of deep institutional anxiety, as we have not just in the church, but across, across the West, where institutions are crumbling, things the centre doesn't hold any longer. So what happens? Well, you get a ratcheting up of the force and the power of those who are in power to figure out how to restructure. So the political ecclesial management is, uh, is a sort of a, uh, imbibed deeply from its host culture on institutional power. And then there's, there's the sacramental. Uh, it's harder to see how that, it, I mean, it's fundamental to churches, but it... Uh, it's not clear to me how that is in sync with the political ecclesial theology. It seems to me, for the most part, in relation to the political ecclesial, to be likened to the, uh, the, poor, the poor one on the road um, that the Samaritan, looking for a Samaritan to come and bind its wounds, put it in hospital and get it going again so it can make a, a contribution to the universe. Um, theology is a little bit like that, and I think Karl Barth, great 20th century theologian, uh, likened it to the, the one that's been beaten up by, by robbers and left to die on the road. I, I, I felt as a theologian in the church, yeah, theology feels a little bit like on the side of the road. Uh, it's a look, luxury we can ill afford in anxious times, and what's it got to contribute anyway? In Newman's view, the real issue is having uh, an open, transparent, critical uh, voice in relation to the, politi the, the political life and the sacramental life of the church. So you need the three. And I think right now the theological voice, to the extent that it has any power, tends to simply mimic the political ideological uh, powers. And I'm not quite sure where the sacramental worship tradition fits in relation to both the theological and the, uh, and the political. I think there's a lot of insight in applying that trifold typology to the current divisions in the Anglican Church. But I would really like to offer a perspective on that in, in a way 
it looks like it operates to me, but I'm not nearly as close to the action as you are, and I'd be fascinated sure. in your your response to it. Right so I think that's really useful. What, what I think is useful about that is that the the dispute that plays out, saying at the synodal level, is a clear testament to the political ecclesiastical power contest that's that's going on, and in. You just look at the way that it's reported. Like the the recent synod was was reported in the Australian and maybe some other newspapers, and and it's kind of fascinating as a political theologian. It just reads like any political reporting. You know that the parliament met, the different parties <laughs> fought it out, and these were the tactics, and these were their outcomes, and now this is the the outworking and the upshot of it. And just the the fact that 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 it's that aspect of Anglicanism that is of interest <laughs> to news, secular newspapers shows that, that what they see as interesting or newsworthy is the political dimension. So that, no, no dispute there. The sacramental um, division, or I guess we could call it ecclesial um, dimension, but this is kind of like Aristotle using the, the term Politeia in two different ways in his sixfold typology of, of politics to have two completely different to denote two completely different polities, which is a very complex way of saying that I, I recognize that <laughs> can't really use the term ecclesial twice in a threefold typology. But setting setting aside that excruciating clarification <laughs> which, I'm, sac- which, which I'm prone to. Are you still with me? <laughs> the, the ecclesial sacramental worship. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that is as plain as day. So take two examples. Um, you can go to a church down in Melbourne, Anglican Church. I think it's called City on the Hill, although yeah. maybe I've got the wrong one. They meet in the Hoyts Theatre. I went there for a Christmas service. As far as I could see, there, there was there was nothing about at the aesthetical level, at, at any level that spoke to Anglicanism except a kind of general evangelical Anglican theology which in a way is, is sort of at the worship level so generically evangelical that it could easily be Presbyterian or, or Baptist or whatever. I know that's simplifying because, because once we start getting into action, once we start running down the list of theological doctrines, obviously you're going to find differences between evangelicals. But the point is, if, if I took a stranger in there and didn't tell them what kind of church it was, Anglican would be right down the bottom of, of the list. But then I can go to another church, and I went to an Anglo-Catholic church for a while, which was a very uh, <laughs> interesting experience for someone that grew up in the evangelical wing of the Anglican church, where not only, only do they have a mass, and that's the term they use, mass, but it's a sung mass, which is like the you know polar opposite, and there's an icon of the Virgin Mary, and it's... There's incense, there's the bells and smells, just to use the cliche. It's a horrible sounding cliche. But the point is, you could walk, you could take an alien. You're trying to introduce an alien species into this thing called, this religion called Anglicanism. You take them to these to two different churches and you would not be able to convince them that they have any connection <laughs> to each other, particularly if they knew something about denominational differences. So that that's a long way of saying Clearly, there's a massive desire, uh, divide at the ecclesial level in the way these two camps worship, their conception of what the church is, you know, 
the sacraments, well, it's kind of, you know, once a month in, in some Anglican churches and it's the centerpiece of Anglo-Catholic churches. Then on the theological, philosophical, again, once you poke beneath the surface, the differences are obvious. These two camps read the Bible differently. It's not just the, you know, the dispute focuses on things like women and, and sexuality, but they're actually deep theological differences, <laughs> which if you brought the two parties together uh, to talk about, you take something like soteriology or the understanding of the atonement. You've got a pen, penal substitution model on one, one side. I don't know what it is on the other side, you know, Christus Victor or whatever. There, there are so many different models. Abelard's exemplar model. Yeah, yeah, what it means to be saved ends up differently. So this is all a way of saying that, that what, I, what I love about that Newman typology, which I hadn't actually yeah. thought about before, is that you really, it, it really does illuminate or bring into, into clarity the core differences. And you find them in, in, in all three. This is, this is the perspective I want to put to you. This was all building up to this perspective. I, I accept that the dispute is playing out, that, that the ecclesial governmental is the dominant, dominant mode. But couldn't you argue that what is actually driving that are the theological, philosophical differences? So why, why is there a dispute about sexuality? Well, I, I, you know, it does on one reading, come down to just fundamentally different ways, different interpretations, not just of specific passages, but a different hermeneutical tradition that is kind of unreconcilable, really. And that, and if you're reading the Bible different differently, which is the, the, the core document at the center of the church and its, its theology, and if those theological differences are so so core and i'm not ruling out all the other issues like clearly we're in a time of great cultural anxiety so that clearly exacerbates and, and heightens and to, to a, a, an earlier insight you had which i thought was really great in terms of the time of anxiety makes you sort of look backwards and both camps in a way look backwards to hold on put a firm stake in the ground that has a, a line back to tradition but i'm just wondering if if in reality it, we might find that it's the the significance of the theological dispute that is making the political fight in the eyes of both a fight to a zero-sum game for the heart and soul of 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 true anglicanism if i can put it in in sort of uh overwrought terms uh, look thanks thanks Jonathan. <laughs> uh, I, the uh, there is no doubting the importance of the particular hermeneutic and theological position which fuels the political. There's no doubt about that. My concern with the theological critical element in the life of the church is that it is deeply resistant to a true, what I would call, scriptural imagination. And so therefore, so much of the theological um, views which fuel so much of what happens in the political are driven by ways of going about the theological task which are inherently tight and 
unable to uh, to break break whatever kind of cage a lot of that hermeneutic is stuck in and i would say that is significant for the ultra progressive as much as the conservative one of my abiding reflections over the last couple of years has been to my my uh, continual uh, I'm, I'm continually uh, taken aback with the lack of what I call scriptural imagination of the church. Um, you go back to the uh, early centuries, the patristic period, and the way uh, they they lived with scripture and uh, saw it um, and and lived out of it, which has been a fundamental part of my own journey. And it's, it's almost as if so much of what takes place now within the theological domain, as it's skewed for the purpose of politics, the political life of power, lacks the capacity for genuine uh, imaginative theological engagement with Scripture. I, I find it rather ironic that I... I that's my... My, fund, my observation. So, yes, sure, at one level, you're right. Um, I think the, some of the theological drivers uh, of the, the present uh, politics as it's being played out in the church are very real and very powerful. But I think ultimately uh, there is a lack. There is a lack there in the task of theology. And I think when I talk about theology lying on the side of the road, being beaten up, uh, it needs a little bit more restoration than simply we'll dust you off and you'll be as good as you were 500 years ago. <laughs> I think something new is, crea- uh, is, is being called for, a new kind of theological engagement. It doesn't mean selling your soul to the whatever the, the mores of the contemporary world are, but it's a much more dangerous undertaking. But theology is a dangerous undertaking. Mm. People die. <laughs> in, in the persecution of Christians is profound in in the world uh, today, because of the uh, the livingness of the gospel in their lives and the re- theological reflections that that that, that fuel that. Um, so uh, my my clarion call as a theologian and an ecclesiologist uh, on the professional side and the academic side has been for a much more concerted uh, re-engagement with scripture uh, in an imaginative way. Imagination's not a bogeyman. <laughs> Unfortunately, in the history of Protestantism, imagination's been seen as a wild, dangerous thing. Um, uh, and I think it's, uh, it's, it's really to the detriment of good quality theology that we don't realize that we are a part of our own hermeneutic yeah. and, and in all our complexities. That's why we need to talk with other people. When we hive off into our own little tribal groups, then we have lost the one, the one feature of theological work and ecclesial work which makes it possible to live together in a house divided, and that is we are committed to being on the way together rather than our own little silos or tribes. Uh, I was struck, a reminder as you were speaking about the word synod, and... Um, the notion of synodality is so fundamental to the reform of the 16th century where lay people as well as clergy were part of the governance and the ordering 
and all voices um, had to be heard. One of the great challenges for the Roman Catholic Church today is synodality, uh, where there is a pressure, a mounting pressure across the globe for the voices of laity to be part of the governance. Now, that's one of the great gifts that the Church of England and then the Anglican Church has 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 appropriated over the centuries. Um, but the word synod, synod, two Greek words, syn, together, S-Y-N, together, hodos, syn, hodos, on the way, together on the way. Synodality is, is an imperative of the gospel. But the way we're behaving politically, you would think that there's about four different ways here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But there's only one gospel. You know? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, At the moment, they're fighting over the GPS system to plot the course that they want to go to because the destination is not, nice. not actually yeah. agreed. You know, it's it's fascinating, Stephen, because just a couple of reflections on what, what you said there. I think a lot of parties in really vigorous theological disputes that I think possibly inevitably always become politicized is that uh, a lot of people forget that theology is a human task. It's not God's task. That is the very act of theology, which after all is talk about God, is the human activity of working out the implications and the connections of scripture and the sort of philosophical ideas that it mounts up, uh, that it raises up to do with the identity of Jesus and all of that interpretive work. And a lot of people, they, they pursue their theological combat like God is has delivered a theology and that it's a competition <laughs> it's a, it's a contest to claim what God's theology is without realizing that I mean why would God even have to do theology about God he's not a mystery to <laughs> to God we and I think uh, an epistemic humility could be built into the process if we recognize that theology is a task undertaken by finite mortal sinful human creatures which have to try and comprehend a transcendent loving God and as you say uh, move together <laughs> in a direction of understanding and common practice in light of the the understanding that's one thing the other the other thing that uh, that uh, reflection that I had from what what you said as you were talking is that and, and this is my own interpretation of of your response to my point, which I really liked, and even if this wasn't exactly your intention, this is what I'm, I'm taking away from it, is that even if at the core it's, it's mutually incompatible differences between convictions about the way you should read the Bible and interpret it, and, there, and thus working out from that, you then end up with mutually incompatible theological doctrines, ethics, whatever. Even if that does drive it, once it then enters the political fray because the nature of the church is such that the power exists. Yep. There is a governing structure. There are leadership positions. There are doctrines and there are processes involved for amending, changing, passing. There's money, there's resources in, in play. And this all has a very tangible impact in the way the church is run and organized. Once those theological dis disputes, as they invariably do then bleed out into the ecclesial political contest then theology pretty quickly can become capture captured <laughs> to the politics and then 
without even the theological protagonists realizing it before they know it, the theology actually has become politics and they think it's still still theology. Was that kind of where you're heading? Uh, I'm very grateful for your comment there because I think that's exactly um, my concern, that it's become subsumed in the political and it becomes the thing. And then you start to wonder, well, what's driving what? Are our... Uh, our deep desires and need for power and authority um, starting to shape the kind of theology that we will draw upon. And uh, it, you mentioned that for, lovely phrase, epistemic humility. Uh, we can't do much without that, we, except an awful lot of uh, harm without that. I, I was... Kind of, as you were speaking, I was mulling over the very first question you asked about what is Anglicanism. <laughs> um, I, I want to say uh, at this stage, having gone through a bit of a hermeneutical loop on this uh, through our journey so far, uh, four things. There are four things that drive or to drive uh, the Anglican Church that I belong to in worldwide communion. Four Scripture, worship, communion and mission. They're the four things, scripture, worship, communion, and mission. All of them are in dispute. Mm. <laughs> All of them are contested. Uh, Stephen Sykes, my a former supervisor of mine, uh, uh, quite a remarkable Anglican theologian, uh, he, he, t- he drew heavily upon uh, Gailey's, uh, W. Gailey's uh, notion of his- historically uh, in terms of history of essentially contested concepts. Christianity is an essentially contested concept. That is not a negative. It's, it's a reality because it's, it's a thing. It's a, a way of being which involves human beings in the world. Um, scripture is an essentially contested concept, but it's much more than that. It's the, it's the wellsprings of our life because here you have... Uh, unfolded through time and space some remarkable uh, ways in which we see and know how God acts in the world and how God regards this world. Um, So it might be contested at one level, but it's a wellspring. And uh, similarly, worship might be contested, but without, uh, without the breaking of the bread and the common cup, we fail... This, the test of epistemic humility because the broken bread and the common cup are signs of Christ's God in Christ's humility of, of coming into this space that we belong for the broken and so uh, as we are participants in that act of worship um, we are put back together again in Christ but you can only be put back together if you're in the space which recognizes that we're broken. <laughs> and if you don't see yourself as totally broken in the way that Christ can redeem and put us back together, then there's no epistemic humility and there is no fruitfulness in your life. So um, the, the, the question about communion is what we're actually talking about, about the Anglican Church, any church, and how it deals with its disputation. I think at that point, the reason why schism and fracture is so deleterious 
to the the word of the gospel is because uh, it 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 breaks up the gospel into all these pieces and, and fractures it and and then what kind of mission do we have um, my how these Christians love one another that was to you know <laughs> to Italian sort of kind of thing back no my how these Christians just fight with one another well what kind of witness do we wish to bear which is why the question of communion and schism and working away in a, even in a house divided working away on the road together is so fundamental to the witness to the gospel and if I have and I do have a criticism of my own heritage and particularly the Protestant part of it because I can speak a little bit more with more kind of sense of it uh, the history since the fifth the 16th century has been a, a history of fracture I remember years ago when I was a Ordinand, and I spent three months in the Philippines. And you've got to get out of your own context to kind of get a sense of it. And we're down on the southern island of Mindanao, which was reasonably dangerous then, but much more so in recent years. And I was just, my wife and I were being taken around, shown the churches. And I said, oh, what's that church? And they said, that's the First Baptist Church from American missionaries in the 19th century. I said, oh, okay. Another 300 metres. What's that? That's the Second Baptist Church. There was a dispute in the first one, so they moved to... Okay, within within another half a kilometre, there's the third Baptist church. The fracturing of these churches and what that does to the witness within the communities, I mean, is, is palpable. It was easier to see in that cultural context, but we're often blind to it in our own. I mean, I sometimes, you know, driving around, I see this church and that church, and I'm part of the Anglican church. And I thought, what, what about somebody from the outside and what they think? Or how do you pick? which is right which is wrong is it like that or is it we just rejoice in the variety here protestantism has a real problem on issues of communion and schism it uh, thinks for the for the cause of truth it can uh, it can afford to keep on breaking 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 and for the cause of the gospel it keeps on losing its silency in the gospel because these these fractures simply do not bear witness to the one God in Christ. I mean, so we they're all contested, but scripture, worship, communion, and mission are the, are the drivers for what the Anglican Church should be concerned about. That's why I'm really concerned about the lack of scriptural imagination yeah. uh, for the future church. So this division is also manifest and having an impact globally. And I know you've participated in one Lambeth conference, the big powwow of these 160 or whatever it was, odd churches. And you've also been involved in committees or commissions of the at the global level. So how, how does the Australian context and dispute here mirror or differ mm. from the global dispute? Because there are evangelicals in many different national churches and there are progressives or liberals or Anglo-Catholics or whatever other divisions. So when you all get together, is it just the same as a, a synod here in Australia? Is it worse? Is it? Oh, you mean in the international body? Yeah. 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 Um, look, uh, all of the, uh, the backer house issues that we've been talking about will be present in the global church in their own local context. 
so they'll have a different hue about them they'll feel a bit different different cultural religious ethnic kind of host cultures but there are a couple of things um, i'd say about it. first of all i've been really it's been it's a great gift to me that uh, i've been able to spend the last 20 odd years in uh, the the anglican communion through my participation in uh, international uh, bodies on the first one was for about from uh, the Inter-Anglican Theological and Doctrinal Commission for seven or eight years. And during that time, there were tremendous eruptions in the church. Uh, We were on, in those days, uh, the the cusp of the question of human sexuality becoming a serious political issue. It's always been an issue, but... um, uh, And then, more latterly, the last nine, ten years, on the international... uh, Commission for Unity, Faith and Order, which I used to say to people, there's not much unity here and the faith is contested and the order seems to be disorder. <laughs> so, so, But around the table, uh, I had the great uh, gift of, I was given the gift of being able to meet people from these different places and the appointments reflected the diversity of, of these traditions and streams that flow into the worldwide Anglican communion. Um, so it was quite an eye-opener. But there are another uh, couple of things. It was the 2008 Lambeth Conference, and I might mention next month is is Lambeth is meeting again for the first time since 2008. Uh, So normally it's it's every 10 years, but uh, because of the COVID, um, there may have been other reasons too, but principally COVID, it's been postponed. So my colleagues in Australia, many of them will be going. uh, In 2008... The question of human sexuality, uh, we, we, we had a different uh, process in 2008 than ever before. There would be no resolutions from Lambeth. The Archbishop of Canterbury at the time... Okay, can, I just, can I just intervene and ask, was that a kind of prudential decision knowing that there was no possibility of a coming to a resolution ahead of time? Well, I, Was that to spare I, the... Uh, no, I think it was, a, it was a real politic, really. I mean, the previous uh, Lambeth was in 1998, at which the, um, that um, uh, resolution on human sexuality was uh, that defining one, uh, and it was, was uh, passed. Um, and it was pretty clear by 2008... And the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, Ryan Williams, said, you know, the history of resolutions from the Lambeth Conference is that we have resolutions and no one takes any notice of. Or they take notice of the things they like to. A 1998 resolution on human sexuality is a classic example of taking notice of parts of that resolution, but other parts of it just ignoring. And for the sake of clarity, that's because the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Lambeth, Lambeth Conference really has no power over the national churches, and then as we explored in the Australian context anyway, most of the power is in the diocese to begin with. That's right. It, it's probably worth a slight detour, but there are so-called four instruments of communion for the Anglican communion. What holds it together? Well, it's not like the Roman magisterium. Uh, we, we don't have that kind of setup. Uh, there is the uh, Anglican Consultative Council, which is made up of members from all of the Anglican communion. That is the one body that has legislative power, um, but legislative power um, of a limited kind, and it can determine 
membership of the Anglican Communion oh, okay. and a few other things. But the other three instruments of the power uh, of the communion that hold it together, one is the Archbishop of Canterbury, and people say, well, how can a person be an instrument of communion? Very good question. So, but, but for purposes of uh, just ordinary uh, speak, the tracing one's roots to uh, Canterbury uh, has become one of those historical points of lineage of connected connectedness, although that's being uh, challenged by some parts of the communion in Africa. Um, the, the other two are the primates, who are the, um, we, we, uh, the primate of the Anglican Church of Australia is, the, is uh, Jeff Smith, Archbishop of Adelaide. Uh, that's uh, a position that was, he was voted on by an electoral board. There are 38 provinces of the Anglican communion. Each would have a primate. Um, and they would uh, send that primate. That, that primate constitutes the the grand poo bar of, of that particular. But but they don't just use the formal ecclesial language. Yeah, but there are only three <laughs> orders: there are deacons, priests, and bishops. Yeah, and there are a range of others. Uh, don't are not a different order, although sometimes you would think so. So there are primate. There is the primate group of primates from the Anglican Communion. So. There's the Anglican Consultative Council, there's the Archbishop of Canterbury and that historical link. There are the primates that constitute a body sort of in between. Um, and I said I said four. And, and, so the the, and the Lambeth Conference yeah. itself, which has no juridical function. It, it is a, a conference, a conferring of bishops for moral and theological encouragement and fraternity. That's what the original intention was. Um, most Lambeth conferences throughout history have always had a few bishops that uh, didn't want to go. <laughs> the first one was a classic in the 19th century where a, a lot of bishops didn't turn up. So um, it's not a new thing that bishops don't come uh, for very important reasons as far as they're concerned. We're not the only church that has this problem. The I know. Orthodox Church, as, as I'm sure you know, held its first Grand Poobah Synod, just to stay with the technical term, in Crete a couple of years ago, but the Russian church didn't turn up. And yeah. That's a massive slice of the... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anglicans, by comparison, are not doing too badly, I think. <laughs> However, um, yeah, I, in 2008, no resolutions. That was a, a smart move. We split up into groups. And I remember uh, the, the group I was in, uh, I was uh, for two and a half weeks every morning, we met in our group of 40 bishops um, uh, I, I was actually given the role as animateur that's what they called it which was to kind of facilitate the conversation the the bishops around the uh, in that room represented not only the different cultures but the different theological persuasions of their churches so there we were for two and a half weeks in a room within the first 10 minutes we had this explosion <laughs> and I was only a young bishop and uh, I thought Dear God, how are we ever going to manage to stay together for two and a half weeks? And the and 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 the first question we had on our agenda was: There's no resolutions in this conference. Here's a list of things you might want to talk about. Which one do you want to first of all address? Well, of course, sex. That seems to be the the lead the lead article um, uh, in our group, and uh, we weren't the only one. I might add: um, If you want to know what the issue is in the Lambeth conferences since the late 19th century, the first one, which was uh, late uh, 
two thirds way through. You the mean by issue, source of dispute, that source of dispute, led some bishops through into the twentieth century polygamy, longest uh, okay. longest running issue. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, nobody seems to know that, and finally found a, a way of resolving as best they could. Longest running issue, directly coming out of the missionary movement. Yeah, understandably. So we're going to talk about sex. The uh, uh, an African uh, bishop uh, got up and said, um, "Well." For us, the whole question of same-sex relationships is uh, deeply missional. Uh, within a Muslim-majority uh, country, uh, the, uh, the church and our church uh, is branded as the homosexual church. Uh, for the purpose of mission, we have to be really careful about this issue because it really gets in the road of our mission, for the purpose of mission. So take a traditional view about same-sex relationships. Um, Immediately he'd finished and he sat down. Um, an Afro-American bishop from America got up and said, well, for the purpose of mission in our church, um, because this is a justice issue, a civil rights, you know, within the context of civil rights in America and justice, if we do not offer the hand of friendship and take a much more open view about same-sex relationships, um, we will be um, said to be uh, continuing the whole issues which provoke the civil rights movement and questions of justice with human beings. So for the sake of mission, we, we are a welcoming church and uh, we have a very positive approach to questions of same-sex relationships in our culture. I thought, yep, yeah, okay, that's it. Um, again and four. That's, that's the binary that we've been told uh, works. And I thought, well, well what, how are we going to do with that? Before I'd had time to actually think about this any further, Somebody gets up from South America and says, well, in our country, there are gangs going around and uh, their express purpose is to, is to kill and uh, uh, persecute um, gay people. And he said, uh, we put a sign up on our church saying, homosexuals are welcome. And we're called the homosexual church. <laughs> For the sake of mission and justice, we have to welcome everybody. And it's not a question about same-sex relationships. It's a question of people being alive or dead. And as uh, soon as he got up and spoke, you could, have, you could have heard a pin drop because all of a sudden the binary, are you for it or against it? How does this, it's, it disturbs the common ground. There's actually apparently a third. <laughs> um, life is a lot more... A lot more complex about this. So I was a real eye-opener for me about the richness of the Anglican Communion. It's different cultures, it's different um, cultural contexts, and the mores of those particular cultures. And what was the, the common element in all of those three people speaking was that from their church, this was a matter of mission. And I thought, gee... So in my that, sense, they're all singing that, from the same song they're sheet. They're all singing from the same song sheet in different cultural contexts and reading scripture in their own context and doing their hermeneutic within their context rather than abstraction. And surprisingly, not surprisingly, they come to slightly more nuanced views about this compared to, when they compare, compare it with each other. Um, so uh, the Lambeth, Lambeth for me and my wife and some others, but uh, the gift it gave uh, to me uh, was in 2008. And that was on the head on the heels of the first 
GAFCON conference, mm-hmm. which had met in Jerusalem. And in those days, it might have been 900 bishops, 1,000 bishops all up that could have come to Lambeth. 300 of those went to GAFCON, but of those, at least 100 then came on to Lambeth. Now, I'll be interested at this Lambeth whether that will be the proportions, basically. Um, so there was still an ability to come together, even though they were coming out of slightly different uh, perspectives on things. I guess the virtue of bringing the national church together. International. The, or the, the international, sorry, church, sorry, right. The I keep, church, keep yeah. leaving off the inter, the yeah. international yeah. church uh, together is not because you're going to reach unity because that's, that's going to be even more impossible than in a, in a locally divided context, but it's to expose the leaders in the various churches just to understand that, that the church is operating in very different contexts which is a kind of confounding factor because even at the abstract you can find things to dispute about but when you're when you are trying to do those four things including mission you know mission worship scripture scripture um you can't it doesn't occur in 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 a vacuum and so even just in a way it's kind of funny because we think the only solution to dispute is is some kind of we all adjust our view to some kind of common unity, but but it is possible to remain united with a dispute provided you talk and you sit around a table and everyone gets up and says what they say. And as long as you can remain in communion, then in a way that is perhaps the only kind of unity that's possible. And even in structures like the Catholic Church, as you and I both, we know plenty of Catholics and we, we have some insight into this church. I mean, it's just as disputatious, even over some of the same issues. Totally. But it's kind of masked because it doesn't play the the different the the different um, governance system. <laughs> in a way, can project an outward unity that is more difficult in Protestant uh, polities. But then once you poke beneath the surface, there are these raging disputes between members of the same order, members of the same national church, the same. And then you've got the diocese. Orthodox churches of the East. Well, I mean, yeah. that, wow! I mean, whew. well, you look, look at Russia, Russia right now. I mean, and, the as and people, Ukraine. Yeah, people may not know, but the church in Ukraine split. It was connected yeah, right. to the. It was, I think, for historical reasons, under the um, patriarchate in Moscow. Moscow, but yeah. not all the churches left, and so now Ukraine is is rent by yep. Orthodox churches, which which would have been you know same doctrine, same same history. Some have stayed with Moscow, others have gone with this new church, and that was the very thing that kept the the Russian church away. And then if you break out more widely, the war in Russia has just completely split the global yeah. Orthodox community. There are there are vociferous supporters, and there are, there are sort of massive critics right across every country and every every place. And you can even see these. Even in places like the Orthodox Church of America, which is an interesting one that is a kind of amalgam of mm. different ethnic churches, you know, that there's <laughs> big disputes uh, about this. But that it all it all goes back to your point about well, if you if you want an organisation, a community, a family without disputes, then come up with some species other than the human being. Yeah, exactly. And this is no mystery for a Christian. It's in this is this is core biblical doctrine i mean where does it begin it begins with a fall 
Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, Hegel said it was a fall up. <laughs> That's dangerous. Um, the, the, the back to where we were, um, started with this, the, the 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 value of meeting together is precisely that you actually have to become aware and listen to the stories that are told from other contexts altogether. That's where this epistemic humility is so critical. To be able to receive something from an... It feels alien because for many, it, it's a different culture altogether in which this gospel has been incarnated and an Anglican polity has sort of formed to help it do it do its business. Um, so without that epistemic humility, uh, there, there, there is no future uh, living with dispute and even dispute about what's fundamental and what's not. There's, that's the history of Christianity, even disputing about that. Um, although my reading of uh, church history and theology has been that theologically uh, the question about the divinity of Christ and some fundamentals like that are, are what I would call gold threads that run through the tradition historically and theologically in which they're on, on the same page. The consequences of that some of the ethical consequences and the secondary theological data have been certainly contested all along the way. But the abiding sense I had from that three, three or so weeks meeting with bishops from all over the world, deeply inspired, I came back loving the body of Christ. Uh, I never thought that that would be the gift that I would receive. And my wife, was, Jennifer, was exactly the same. The, the body of Christ is a remarkable a remarkable ecclesi- ecclesial body um, throughout the world and the Anglican pa- contribution to that form of it is it's just an amazing thing so it was it was a very humbling and joyful even amidst some of the the challenges look the other the other thing is Anglicans generally speaking hang their washing out other churches and you alluded to this in your comment will mask mask some of the back of house stuff it's almost as if anglicans have their clothesline on the front at the front of the house not the back <laughs> and so they're kind of whipping horses for every um for others but generally speaking uh it has been the catholics and others who have said please work together at these things for our sake for the for the wider ecumene of the church and the universal church please because you want to you, you it's all out there with you Work at it, and give us, show us how to, how to, how this can be done. So I think there's a great uh, there's a great value in that kind of Anglican polity in Christianity. Um, look, the last thing I'd say on this is my involvement in the international commissions. Um, so many memorable things uh, seeing the church throughout the world, but there was one uh, in uh, in Ghana we, about five years ago uh, on the commission on the, on unity, faith, and order. Um, uh, I think it's uh, West Coast um, is, uh, it's called West Coast I think that's what it's called might be wrong um, there is a castle it was called the Slave Castle and uh, uh, underneath the castle we were taking a tour of this thing um, underneath is where the slaves were held and uh, before they were shipped to the Americas and there was this called a slave door and that's where they were they were taken out onto the boats through the slave door and never to be seen again. On the castle on the next floor up, there was a chapel. <laughs> and I was trying to get my head around the fact that in, in this period, uh, on the one hand, 
slaves are being brought in underneath and the bread's been broken and the cup's been shared and the gospel's been proclaimed on the chapel above it. There's this disjunction was profound about slavery. That was one thing about the, the, the real challenges of some fundamental issues in society that the church has had to work at and made many mistakes. On the other side of the road was the Anglican Cathedral. And we went there for uh, a Sunday uh, Eucharist. And one of the members of our commission was a wonderful Jamaican bishop who was pre he was preaching. He preached and he said, uh, he said, my forebears came from the land of Bob Marley. And he said, and I speak like you do. He said, I came from here. My forebears came on slave ships. It was, you could have heard a pin drop. This bishop of the Anglican Church in the Jamaicas, back in uh, a place which was his roots, the root, the rock from which he was hewn. Uh, it, was, it was very powerful. But then we are singing for three hours, 19th century, hymns ancient and modern, to steel bands. <laughs> Unbelievable juxtaposition of ancient cultures, new culture and vibrancy. I never thought I'd be able to sing um, ancient and modern, which was what I grew up on in the uh, 1960s, uh, to steel bands. And all of a sudden, it took on a new, a new beat. <laughs> and of course, there were other things too. So the joyfulness, this Pentecostal worship, Within, within a, a free-floating charismatic kind of Anglicanism, which was deeply structured around the Book of Common Prayer, uh, was a thing to behold. And it just it goes to the point about scriptural imagination and worship imagination and finding links to the deep tradition of Eucharistic worship, but yet expressed in ways which are quite remarkable. And I was... Kind of, it's a bit of an echo. So it was my experience in the, the worldwide church is far richer and more diverse than we could ever imagine, and we need to rejoice in it. Um, so that your visit to uh, uh, that uh, church in, in Melbourne, that you said there was nothing discernibly Anglican about it, uh, well, I think it probably at that point is more of an example of what I call a pan-evangelicalism across the West. Um, and... Uh, much more driven by notions of uh, what we're doing here is having a meeting to hear a word proclaimed. And, and, but the more serious issue in all of that is the uh, we are beholden to an entertainment culture. Yeah, that's, that there's no is, doubt about that. That is the real issue that we face with contemporary worship, um, that it's driven by the, the mores and the, uh, of, of, uh, and what's expected in the customs of uh, entertainment culture. There's always a challenge of cultural accommodation slap adaptation. And we tend, we tend to focus on this often in the theological, ethical domain where it's very obvious. Whilst going to churches that, you know, I've been to Willow Creek, a mega church in the US, that um, it was an amazing concert, but it was a concert. Uh, I, I struggled to, to yeah, conceive sure. of it yeah. as a church. It was it was a it was a really high quality rock concert with you know thousands and thousands of people in a 
in a theater in a in a kind of stadium theater with a cafe and a bookshop and and ushers and car park attendants with a small kind of christian talk that you might get at that this is a kind of mission strategy where you maybe you you go away for a camp and you play sports sure. and you do stuff and there's a little message it it um it felt like that now that that's a kind of cultural accommodation that in a way on the evangelical side is is accepted in a really surprising and un, surprisingly uncritical way and maybe it relates to the fact that you have to be so dogmatic on the theological and ethical grounds because you have completely conceded on the ecclesial ground <laughs> to the culture around you but the point is in a way that that city on a hill church you could say is an Australian version of that church you went to in Ghana in that 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 is showing the cultural influences of of Australian entertainment yeah, culture, that, even if it's yeah. come from America. And this this, yeah. this this is the interesting thing. See, I know from my study of Islam that you have in different contexts really challenging accommodation accommodation questions, and and they are not just ecclesial; they're theological. So, what does it mean to be a Christian in Iran when yes. when you have to be in an underground church, and you have to outwardly basically pretend to be a muslim just to be able to be a christian and and what happens with the transition from islam in something like the insider movement which is this spontaneous jesus starts appearing in the dreams of bangladeshis and and there are, there's no missionary involvement and the theology ends up being a little questionable on issues like the son of god something's clearly happening and there, there's a great debate in missiological circles about the translation of the Bible into Arabic and the status of the insider movement. So wherever the church is and it comes in to contact, there's there's this really difficult negotiation between the host culture because you have to make... I mean, the worship has to be intelligible. This is why the the Roman church, and it took, a, took many centuries to start doing the mass in languages that people could under understand so that but the these are the challenges do we yeah. you know if we really like what what would the most conservative form of church be well it probably would all be in greek or aramaic yeah <laughs> that is precisely what the greek church does it the well, orthodox church I, I mean it's the the glorious reality is that the son of god came to the far country Jesus Christ was born in a stable and uh, God in Christ was embedded in the in the stuff of ordinary everyday life so the incarnation if it's to be real and the church is to mirror and try to imitate in its best way possible that incarnation of God then the best forms of church will be those that take seriously cultures in which they live so that's that's a given. Therefore, we've all almost the, the church, the ecclesial body of Christ has has given itself that fundamental issue of wrestling between relevance and identity, which is the way Jürgen Moltmann once put this: uh, a church that's not relevant. I mean, it's going to go nowhere. A church that forfeits some deep issues to do with its identity is not the church of Jesus Christ. So there's this dialectic between relevance and identity. My concern would be an uncritical incarnation. And that's where the role of theology and the voice of proper engagement and critique 
needs a much greater airtime in the space that we have right now. For example, I'm, I'm really not in favour of um, churches in, in, within Protestant tradition looking like the people, the leaders are basically accountants, you know. I mean, I've got nothing against accountants, but, but a tie and coat or an open neck shirt now and a jacket, that seems to be. They are, they are features which uh, kind of connect with a certain cohort um, and uh, I, I don't know, it's a, it's a very interesting question about dress codes and what works, what doesn't. Um, anyway, but so, no, I guess the, I guess account, the but... point is, it like it's it it feels like a trivial issue to talk about dress code, but I think the larger point which I agree with is if you don't take a critical lens to everything right down to the dress code, the kind of building you meet in. I mean, I mean, some of these Pentecostal churches, and I realize there might be pragmatic reasons why they need to meet in things that look like fifth-tier office buildings sure. in industrial yeah. areas. But comparing that to a glorious cathedral, and I guess there, there are swings and roundabouts here and <laughs> horses for courses. Yes, that's right. But I, I, I look at some of those buildings... I just think, what kind of God does it say is being worshipped? And I know there's a theology, you know, God's not interested in the building and so forth. But I guess the point I'm making is, and this, I'm acknowledging there's disagreement here. The point is, this should be up for critical discussion. Yeah. And to bring exactly. this full circle, because we need to bring this home <laughs> somehow, Stephen. And it's just such an interesting conversation. Like, like it's hard to do. But if the ecclesial political dominates everything, then we stop thinking critically about the ecclesial sacramental. And really, actually, in some ways, that might be much more important, a much more important part of the wrestle the church is in for its future and for its heart and soul in how to actually be a church in an increasingly alien, tumultuous, complex cultural setting. And I think sometimes people think like as long as we stand against same-sex marriage, which is once poll, or as long as we make our entire ecclesial life about affirming LGBTIQ people, as though somehow that that is could possibly be an authentic church vis-a-vis -vis the whole history and incarnation of theology, really speaks to a cultural poverty that doesn't realize actually <laughs> you've got to do a lot more serious thinking about how on earth to be a community of believers with the work pressures, the cost of living, the how do you communicate and interface with the secular world around you, the intra, um, the intra-Christian community, trying to think intelligently and sophisticatedly and with epistemic humility through complex ethical questions that didn't even exist yesterday. <laughs> now you've named them all. Uh, good on you. Uh, it's a bit of a tour de force there. I, I, the thought that comes to my mind, first of all, sure. What, as I said earlier, what we shall be, it is not yet clear but we long for it to be a reflection of the face of Jesus Christ. Um, and I then I immediately think of, uh, in the early church, the movement from the uh, larger cities, such as they had in the ancient world, uh, where Christian, Christianity had taken root, um, to uh, the desert. And that whole movement of protest from the nom arising nominalism, if you like, the weariness of things which had 
lost that cutting edge uh, and uh, the issues to do with uh, the contemplative listening to God again within a noisy culture. Now, that has nothing on the noise that we've got in static we've got to do. With. But, but, it, but, it, um, but it did represent an interesting move in Christianity and uh, this longing for a new solace and space in which to hear again that incarnate word and to live it again um, in the best forms of the variations and varieties of Christian monasticism that's been the driver and what was interesting in the earlier church uh, has been somebody goes out and desires that and finds that they have friends soon enough because there's a there's a, a, an intuitive sense within a culture of this need I, I think the future of Christianity in, and it'll have its Anglican version and its other versions, and they're already, it's already springing up like mushrooms, will be uh, um, within the busyness of the West and its uncertainties, a more contemplative move. And it will be a smaller move from the mega to the local. Um, I was once, it was once said to me, look, the early churches were basically in households Households in those contexts, you know, they, they had a whole variety of families and slaves and what have you. And I say slaves advisedly. It was a different kind of household sort of people. About 40. That would have constituted a household church. Um, what makes us think that 10,000 in a stadium is going to be the future of Christianity? I mean... I, I see the future as much more going back to uh, meaningful, intimate, contemplative places to hear again the word, to break the bread together, to find a common mission uh, of immersion in the social issues of a community. I think that's where the future is going. It's countercultural for a start. Except that some of the smartest in the secular world are into mindfulness and they're in, in, into this the yogic kind of world. And I'm not knocking that because I think it's actually feeding this felt need which is not being satisfied by an entertainment culture or a highly materialistic competition culture. So I think the church would be wise to, and it's, and it's, uh, it's going back to its, its bishops in the Anglican church, to think about these things and uh, how that might encourage uh, these kind of movements because to come full circle to a question about my own Episcopal life I think the job of a bishop is rather tortuous today but it's it's actually sucked up into very much the political management side of things but if you look at the vows that a bishop makes um, about scripture and prayer and and the unity of the church uh, Episcopos, Episcopoi um, to see over uh, but I've always thought the bishop's job is to keep one eye on the waves on the seashore and one eye on the tide. You know, I used to think you just bishops just look, looked at the direction of the tide. No, it's worse than that. You've got one eye on the seashore, one eye on the tide. What's the direction of things? Um, bishops need to take advice about that and to think and discern and what to encourage the people of God in the direction of the tide even while they're looking at the local things that are happening even now and that they've got to kind of find a way forward. It's very hard to do that. But I think the future of the church is, first of all, 
to be discerned by watching where the tide's going. Stephen, I think that's a great prophetic note to bring what I found a really stimulating conversation to a close. And so that just leaves the thank you. So thank you so much for such a fantastic conversation. I really appreciated it. Thank you very much, Jonathan. And look, uh, thank you for the gift of being able to speak about these things. Um, It's been a real pleasure for me. Thank you.